Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. After we posted our FDA webcast episode last week, I found myself in conversations with many friends, some of whom have appeared as guests on the podcast. I felt two conversations were so interesting that we turned them into interviews and we're publishing them as an added bonus for you. This interview is with Jorn Schottenberg. Jorn discusses why FDA acceptance of digital pathology means so much, particularly the non-North American trial sites, and also discusses some of the down and dirty clinical development design issues he'll be considering based on the agency's comments. The entire conversation lasted 17 or 18 minutes, kept me thinking for hours after we got off the phone. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, patient advocate Donna Cryer, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. This conversation is with Jorn Schottenberg, who's been a good friend of the podcast from my easel last summer and on. And what we're going to be doing with Jorn's conversation, as with several others over the next couple of days, is simply getting feedback to what people took away from the FDA webcast as the important findings. And then we'll touch on a couple of the subjects that we touched on in the uh, post-webcast event. So Jorn, how are you today? Hey, Roger. Thanks. I'm great. Uh, it's Friday afternoon or evening, uh, depending where you are. And uh, I'm excited to, to have a free weekend with the family. Um, and of course, uh, to be able to talk to you here. Thanks for uh, having me on. Oh, my pleasure. And continuing uh, Stephen's tradition of teasing Manal Abdulmalik about seeing every room in our house, I will tell you that Jorn has recently moved and I've not seen him on video in the last maybe month. And you can tell from the difference in the background that in the tradition, he now has his office set up and he actually looks more comfortable and relaxed. And I think these things might go together. Friday night to spend a weekend with the family might have something to do with it as well. Good for you, Jorn. So just, just to start, if you were going to rate the content of what the FDA provided on that discussion from zero to 100, where zero is no value and 100 is everything I ever could have asked for, where would you rate it? What number would you give? Yeah, I think I'd go um, high and give it a 75. I'd like to give it a 50 to 60 for content, but I think it's such an important discussion and meeting that I'm thrilled that we're at the point to have this discussion with regulators and drug developers to really move the field forward. And to me, that's the most exciting part. We're at a, at a stage of treating and understanding NASH where this is one of the most exciting areas in, in drug development uh, currently. And the, the, the stories unfold um, you're still in a position to actually define, you know, parts of the targets, the biomarkers, as you're thinking about your drug development program, and and the agency is right there to discuss this with you. I mean, there are hurdles, but I think it's been a very important discussion at this point. So the 75 broken into two parts, an extremely high grade based on the fact of the event and what it signifies about progress in, in the disease and drug development, and a 50 to 60 on content. Tell me why the 50 to 60 on content, please. Anything particular about it that you didn't get or did get? Or? I think the content and the discussion around endpoints, cirrhosis, uh, are there other endpoints that can be used is a little bit disheartening because we're stuck with histology. And I think this is at current the best way to assess changes, to assess treatment efficacy. That has been made very clear. The, the very interesting advantage is, of course, the use of digital slides. You discussed that in your last podcast, and I think you went over that full length. I think there's 
there's room for uh, new technologies, including AI, in assessment of efficacy. But in the end, it's still histology with all the hurdles, meaning access to trial for patients, barriers in particular in COVID, getting all these end-of-treatment biopsies in, what do we do with missing biopsies? And even beyond that, it's just an invasive procedure and an imperfect gold standard. And I think uh, we've discussed this uh, many times in this podcast. So that's, of course, one point. So the fact that histology is still a big part of the uh, picture for the for years is, is the disappointment part. What, what get, so that's what didn't get a higher score. What about what they discussed got you to 50 or 60, got you up that high? Yeah, I think the exciting part is that again you can you can move away from sending glass slides through Europe or across the ocean to the states for a pathologist to read it and then wait for 5 or 6 weeks for a turnaround to finally start a patient in the trial. I think this is logistically as a physician who participates in clinical trial, this is one of the really worrisome parts where, where are my slides? Where's the patient stand? Has the pathology read those slides yet? I think on many levels that slows down drug development and I think that's the exciting part if you think about the histology. Uh, the other one is that I think we're seeing a clearer idea of uh, which endpoints that can be used or those have been reinforced. I think which endpoint can be used in what phase of drug development. Very clear separation of early phase drug development, late phase two, and then phase three. That was laid out uh, very clearly. And I think uh, that's important uh, if you consider your drug development program here in this field. Well, th thanks, Jan. So one of the questions, I, I think I asked this on the podcast, on Friday, we didn't completely get to answer it, and it's something that sticks with me, is in the white paper, they talk about the ICH guidelines for sample size, which would lead you to believe, as Kitty Yale pointed out in the question she sent in on Monday, that you would need uh, 1,500 cases total. But it felt like from the discussion on Friday that there were, may have been more places to get those cases than, than you had in mind. You could combine perhaps cirrhotics with uh, F2, F3 fibrotics. You, so you, you'd have two different trials. You could maybe combine your phase two and your phase three data. Um, have you given much thought on that question as to whether they are, in fact, I think they are pointing out it's a disease of millions of people. Therefore, we're going to want to understand the safety profile better. What thoughts have you had about the challenges or opportunities that that might cause? Yeah, I think that that is a, an important point. And something I took away from the discussion, the Q&A, is that even if you have a phase three trial that say that using uh, one of those new combined endpoints has a very low placebo response rate and showing efficacy that's statistically significant, it might not be enough to get your drug approved related to to the higher number of cases you might need to show safety of the drug. And I, and I think here your, your entire drug development program comes in, so you have to show the safety in a larger population. And I think this is something that in the end led to the decision that we don't have an approved drug at this point yet. I'll bite showing efficacy, more data is required on the safety side. So um, while we'd all like to cut down on the sample size to uh, spare patients being treated in a clinical trial and, and also to cut down expenses, I think we'll still need large trials to comply with that requirement to demonstrate safety. So I guess so I think that's right. The question I guess I have I'm wondering about, I don't know whether people have thought about this much. I've not spoken to anybody on the panel since we recorded last week. Whether there are creative ways to use the combination of phase two and phase three trials and the cirrhosis trials and the fibrosis trials to put less pressure on a single F2, F3, phase three trial and still get to the numbers that you need. Yeah, I, I think there is uh, there's value in that. Uh, I mean, the major uh, aspect of this is, of course, um, exposure 
drug or the duration of treatment? Because in the phase two, we normally shoot for surrogates, potentially non-histological based uh, endpoints. So it's difficult to talk about uh, a safety aspect uh, examining histology. Uh, if you have a 12-week MRI-based study, you do gather safety information. If you're talking about longer exposure data, that's not there from that phase two trial. So I see that hurdle. But uh, for sure, expanding your safety population with all the patients that have received drug is, is one way to do that and uh, increase the numbers of patients on drug or that have seen drug. Okay, um, that makes sense. But as you point out, that also puts a lot of pressure on phase three trials, because those are the only ones that are going to go long enough to get you what you need. Yeah. And that might be of higher importance once you go into the more advanced stages. So uh, remember, and they even encouraged going in the earlier phase trials, um, you could use uh, NAFL uh, as an indication. You don't have to get a liver biopsy. It's enough to have an elevated ALT and potentially an MRI PDFF above a certain level. And you expose the patient to drug. Now, if you go into a population that has advanced fibrosis, pre-serotic, or even serotic, the whole aspect of safety, drug metabolism might be different. So yes, I think it's important to keep the stage of the disease and the exposed the number of patients exposed in that disease stage in mind. Of course, very important in the cirrhotic space. I'm not saying F3 uh, and F2 are necessarily different diseases, but if you have a phase two with no histological information, it's sometimes difficult to to say how you know fibrotic that liver is, and that could be one factor in determining your your drug safety profile there. That's interesting. As I'm listening to you, I'm hearing attention that I'd not thought about at the time, but strikes me as clear, which is that, you know, one of the points that, that Stephen and Kitty both made on Friday was that we're now seeing drug trials where it's not clear that you need anything like two years of data to hit your efficacy endpoints. And the context that Stephen uh, said that in was that we're just developing more effective drugs and the com uh, the compounds we're using are more efficient in, in achieving changes on histology over a shorter time frame. Now, uh, I made the comment of safety. I don't think you need to have long-term safety uh, all from the beginning, but it'll be important to gather that long-term safety data. And we've heard discussions about combining phase three and phase four trials. And I think this is one way to move forward here and, and, and pay particular attention to, to the safety aspect as the FDA has highlighted this as a central concern. Even if you have an effective drug, you've got to show that safety profile. That makes good sense. And the use of phase four makes tremendous sense to me because if you can prove efficacy in a year, a year might be more than adequate for the FGF-21 for example, based on the early data that we're seeing. So what that would portend is phase four becomes really critical because that's going to carry the burden of a lot of the safety data. Yeah, I think that's what phase four is uh, there already today. Uh, and particularly in that indication, it is important because the FDA has said that in a number of occasions here, they really want a positive risk-benefit ratio. Now, the, the, the problem is if you're applying for uh, accelerated approval under subpart H, you want to, and they require you to have all the, the safety data up front, uh, then you need an additional backup strategy to uh, satisfy that demand, or you might need it, you know? Well, you might need two trials. Well, yeah, that's right. Well, two trials might not do it. That's interesting. Because the, the other thought I had was that if you're going to take that approach, you might have to power it differently because now I'm not powering for efficacy anymore, but I'm powering for in phase four, 
when patients who did not respond medication drop out, I still need enough responders to go on and get the level of safety data that I that I need out of phase four, which might, does that make a larger phase three? Am I, am I thinking right about that? Yeah. I, in the discussion, I think this is something that for me stood out. You might need longer and larger patient populations to address that safety aspect. And, and normally how it's done is, you know, you include a number of F1 patients to increase your sample size for safety. Uh, we're seeing that in the uh, phase three trials already now, and they're not part of the primary uh, efficacy analysis, the F1 uh, population, but for safety. And But you need a good idea going into that phase trial, how's my safety profile, how many events. Uh, so that has always been an important part of drug development. But in this context and after the discussion Q&A, I think it just can be highlighted enough that positive risk-benefit ratio has to be shown. One of the things that just strikes me, and we didn't say this explicitly last Friday, but it's clearly coming out of this chat, is that at that point, powering your sample from phase one all the way through is really two-dimensional. Right now, you're not just powering for efficacy, you're powering for efficacy and safety. And safety has some constraints in terms of how many patients over how much time. So the whole thing becomes a little more complicated. What other subtleties might we be able to plumb a week later that we weren't thinking of an hour after the podcast ended? besides that one. You commented on that. There's a lot of need and demand for science to advance the field, and we're seeing that. We're seeing the the, the amount of data that's generated in the field is increasing exponentially. Um, there was also a comment uh, that encouraged an intrinsic biomarker uh, program in your, um, in your phase three or in your drug development program. So if you have an MOA and you, you get a good target engagement marker and potentially an efficacy marker, uh, it's worth to um, drag that along and uh, think about developing that as a marker of response um, alongside all the markers that are currently studied. Um, I think going into uh, your drug development program, that could be a very smart idea. So please educate me. So you talked before about taking F1 patients, dragging them all the way through for safety reasons. Yeah. So this is the traditionally called safety population. You do see that in the phase three trials that are not part of the primary endpoint uh, efficacy analysis. Okay. Would they have to undergo histology at the beginning of phase three or they would not because you're not looking for efficacy measures? No, they undergo histology and, and that's the definition and the inclusion. So they, they comply with all the inclusion exclusion criteria. But normally what happens is that the F1 population is capped at a certain extent, let's say 20% to keep that out of the study. It helps you to recruit the study more, more rapidly. It helps you to um, in the beginning. So sometimes what happens is then you fill up your F1 arm quickly and uh, you're, the, the tough patients or the more advanced patients are, come in a little later. Uh, I mean, we're seen a lot of competition uh, of clinical trials and patients around uh, these phase three trials. There's a number of them going on and a lot of very interesting compounds in development. So something that we've seen in the past is the, the safety population enrolls quickly and then you need the juicy part of your trial still needs to be recruited. So Okay, if, so but if you can bring patients in an F2 without histology... Not in a phase 3 trial. I think that was also very clear, that for the phase 3 trials, you need uh, the phenotypic uh, NASH based on NAS score with fibrosis, and most of the time, F2, F3 population is the population that's considered for efficacy endpoint analysis. I'm going back to the safety idea, which is that in phase two, where you're starting to actually look somewhat at efficacy, if you can recruit those patients without histology, then it means you may be able to demonstrate benefit to the patient before they have to do their first liver, before they have to do their first biopsy. And I wonder if that makes it easier to 
get a patient to do a biopsy if they already know that the drug is working and this is what they've got to do to stay on it as compared to this is what you got to do to maybe get a placebo i'm just wondering yeah yeah for sure so the phase the the early phase uh program where you do not need the histology and you use mri or something is of course very important and it's a very important part when i discuss the safety of long-term treatment or longer treatment with my patients uh going into a clinical trial i rely on that data uh, if the drug hasn't been used in other indications because we're seeing some examples where, for example, the diabetes field, of course, there's been a lot of exposure. So some of, those, some of those drugs do not have the same degree of safety concerns we're discussing here for those drugs. Yeah, let's, take a, let's take a drug that's approved for diabetes. Uh, of course, they have a lot of patient exposure. It's much easier to show the the, the, the safety uh, aspects here. Yes, you would think you would think SEMA, for example, semaglutide have a much easier time with that requirement because they've got all the patients they need already. And that makes sense. One other thing that came up in the podcast that I'd be interested to get your feedback on is the whole issue around cirrhosis and F4 patients. First of all, the idea that you might get to market with those patients without a phase four trial at all because you have no accelerated endpoints. Yeah, I think from the discussion, it was clear that the agency would like to see endpoints of clinical relevance and the use and value of HPPG, which has been established in the field, is currently reviewed. And this was the section where a lot of ums were, were actually uh, in the in, in on the podcast or on the discussion. And I think uh, they're actually discussing that. So, what's the deal with HPPG? I think this is a highly relevant analysis or or uh, measure that is linked to outcome. There's strong evidence to that. The problem is the reproducibility and the experience of the centers that are doing it. Once you try to do HPPG over a number of centers that are not as experienced as the expert centers, you do get more variability. And I think this is where some noise comes in. And in the end, you have the same noise compared to histology, if not more, because it's just a measure where you have to be an expert uh, to do it. That's great. We have a couple of minutes left. Anything about the webcast, the aftermath of the webcast that you'd like to share with this audience that I'm not either smart enough or thinking in the right direction to ask you about? Again, I think you guys covered so many grounds and it was it was great uh, to hear your recaps and thoughts on it. I think something that wasn't touched and that was mentioned briefly is standard of care. Going into the phase three trials, uh, you the FDA said you have to pre-specify your standard of care, harmonize that in an ideal world across different continents. And I think that's very important. Uh, the whole concept of enrolling patients in a stable uh, condition, stable with regards to the comats, with regards to the weight loss. Um, so patients that have really tried to reduce weight and are not at the beginning of, you know, doing lifestyle changes that will affect their weight and therefore affect the endpoint and then start them in a drug trial. And, and along that line, the FDA mentioned that you should pre-specify your standard of care, what was done beforehand. I think the protocols define that. I think it's important that as a drug developer, you educate your trial physicians on how you would want to see that and that you do not want to uh, enroll patients that are at the beginning of, let's say, starting to change uh, their diet or something. That's an excellent point. Thank you. It also raises an interesting question to me about multi-country trials. Before I ever got involved in liver disease, I spent a lot of time in oncology where we would try to simulate patient patterns over five treatment patterns over five years. And one of the problems was that every country had different drugs approved and different acceptable protocols. And as a result, it became very hard to replicate the future here. I would think if you want to go into global markets, not just the US or, or, or European, but really major all the major markets around the world, you might find 
find yourself with four or five different standard protocols for care of untreated patients. Am I assuming that correctly? Well, I would say that local medical practices can be very diverse um, internationally and depending on, you know, let's say the drugs that are available, the reimbursement system, but also lifestyle and diet based on just different cultural backgrounds. And um, all that I want to say and highlight is as a sponsor, you should think about how based on national, um, you know, let's say standard, and I think this can be different in the US and in India, um, you should have a stable patient entering your trial, and then it's fine. Uh, You can still look at, uh, they might be stable at a different level comparing Asia to, let's say, uh, the US, but uh, they are stable anyways. To to give some guidance here, there's actually a a manuscript that's been published, and I uh, uh, was honored to to co-author that with uh, Manal. She's the last author on it um, for um, standard of care in clinical trials um, with regards to lifestyle recommendations. And I think that's a, that's a guidance document that you could look at if you're interested in that and, and, and get some some of the thoughts we, we had put in there. Okay, that's great. And to our listeners, when we post Jorn's interview, uh, we will have a somewhere attached to the description a link to that article for people who have not seen it and would like to go get it. That's great. Jorn, you've been fantastic today, as you always are. Um, anything else to add or are we good for, are we good for now? I, I think I could go on for a long time because it's, again, fun. And, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to chat with you here, uh, Roger. I think as a as a summary, and this is something I heard on the FDA webcast, this is an exciting area of drug development. We are at a phase of exponential uh, growth in knowledge, an exponential growth in treatment paradigms. And I'm confident that we're going to bring this to the finish line uh, in the best interest of our patients, of course, and also with all the, the hurdles that have been on the way. are, are on. They're well-defined, most of them, and, and we're ready to... Um, to bring this forward. Well, Joran, thank you. Not surprising to anybody who knows you. This has been a fantastic interview, and I can't wait to have you back on the podcast again. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Joran Schottenberg. If you have any comments or observations or just want some feedback from Joran on something you've been thinking about, please send a note to surfingnash.com and indicate on the title line to whom we should forward it, and we'll get it done. Stay safe and surf on. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.